Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 23, Pennsylvania's Native and Wild Trout with Chad Huff. In today's episode, I talk with Chad about the state of Pennsylvania's native and wild trout. Chad is an avid fly fisherman and conservationist. He has been a Trout Unlimited member since 1989 and is the former chapter president of Arrowhead 214. Let's dive into this great natural resource with a great steward of Pennsylvania waters. Today I'm joined by Chad Huff. Thanks for coming on with me today, Chad. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate the, the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we know each other personally uh, previous to this, and I know you're passionate about what we're going to be talking about today. So let's first just start by having you tell our listeners how you got into fishing and why you are so passionate about trout fishing. Well, <clears throat> I've been fishing since I was fairly young. I think I told you before about 27 years I've been fly fishing. I did get into fishing prior to that probably when I was in elementary school my dad took me to the ponds and uh, a couple of memorable trips on some local trout streams for stock trout but it wasn't until I was in like I think seventh eighth grade my two uncles Bob and Jim passionate fly fishermen for 50 plus years took me down to the local river in Catanning uh, PA and we casted for bass uh, you know and I it was really interested in the casting side so I kind of went the fly fishing direction the rest of the time since then and been doing it ever since so so for th- those who might be new to fishing or maybe not understand the difference, uh, and that sort of includes me as I'm not big in the fishing, what's the difference between stock trout, wild trout, and native trout? Because we have all three in Pennsylvania, right? Correct, yeah. Um, we'll start with the easiest one, stock trout. Those are what we, what's called hatchery-supported trout. The Pennsylvania Fish Commission has been doing it for probably since their existence. I don't have the exact figures of when they started, but it was probably in the early 1900s. They started stocking trout to replace the trout that were decimated by logging, also by human consumption. And to this day, they typically stock usually about 3.2 million trout a year. And I think if I'm not mistaken, there's four, four or five hatcheries throughout Pennsylvania that raise these fish from eggs all the way up to stockable size, which is typically around uh, anywhere from eight to 10 inches. And they take them in, in typically in the spring, and there's some cases in the fall and winter, they stock them uh, for people to enjoy and fish and keep, and a lot of people eat them. Um, so that's the easiest one to go over. The wild native trout, <clears throat> a little bit more, I wouldn't say complicated, but a little bit more has to be to ex- explain. Both native and wild trout are f- trout that are born in the wild, you know, without the help of man. The difference between native, a native fish is something that was here before man's influence, so the only true native trout in Pennsylvania is the brook trout, um, which are found still to this day and typically in the headwaters, a lot of the uh, uh, areas above Route 80 and then down along the uh, Laurel Highlands and then out in the Poconos is kind of their still their range. Um, <clears throat> wild trout in Pennsylvania, we actually have two wild trout. One is the wild brown trout and the other is wild rainbows. And the reason they're called wild is because they're not native to this area. Um, the rainbow trout are native to the uh, western coast of the United States, like California up to Alaska. And while, uh, the brown trout were brought here in the 1800s from Germany and Europe um, and placed in the streams. 
you know, as additional trout species to take over from where the, um, the brook trout had started to de- be decimated by overfishing and forestry and industry. So I would say nowadays in Pennsylvania, the most common wild fish that we have is the brown trout. There is a handful, I think there's like 12 streams in, in Pennsylvania that have wild reproducing rainbows, but rainbows trout take a specific type of water, and a lot of the streams in our state don't have that type of water uh, consistently throughout the year, so there's just a small range for them. I, I didn't know that. And obviously with stock trout, I mean, it costs money to feed those trout and to raise them, right? And Pennsylvania, the Fish Commission, they get that money mainly, I guess, probably through the, the trout stamp? Yeah, they they're... They, from what I understand and, and have read and heard is raising and rearing of trout by the Fish Commission of Pennsylvania is probably one of the biggest expenses next to, I think, their uh, health care and hospitalization packages um, as for you know, yearly um, revenue uh, spending. Um, and what they, they require, if you want to fish for trout, whether it's a wild trout or a stock trout stream, uh, you have to purchase a upon your license uh sale you have to purchase a trout stamp and it and it varies from year to year it typically i can't remember off the top of my head i wish i had to figure here what maybe it's like five dollars or something for that trout stamp so that money goes into a kitty and that's what they use for the feed and for the um uh transportation cost of tr- trucking these fish throughout the state and you know the manpower for their officers and deputies to be placing them in the streams so it, it is the the trout fishing in pennsylvania is a paid kind of a pay to fish if you want to fish for trout, you're paying for it in, in, in the um, trout stamp. And then also there's uh, another species of trout, which is basically a rainbow that, that goes out to the lake and comes back in the spawn called a steelhead. Um, there's also a stamp, a Lake Erie tributary stamp that you have to pay for the steelhead program. And the way the steelhead program works in Pennsylvania is they rear uh, fingerlings, um, I think up to maybe like four or five inches that are rainbow trout steelhead strain. They release them in the tributaries of Lake Erie, the fish, once they get acclimated in the, in the, in the <clears throat> spring and uh, fall, they go out into the, the lake and uh, usually typically stay two to three years in a lake and get large, and then they come back in to spawn usually on their second or third year. And that's a whole, you know, uh, supportive fishery by planting of the fingerling uh, fry every year. So that's also pay to play. You have to pay for that type of uh, license also. Most of the trout that are caught by Pennsylvania anglers, you know, they're stocked, as, as you already said. I mean, that's the seem to be the majority of the trout fishermen that we have here. Um, you know, they come from those fisheries, and you said there's about three million that were released in a year. I mean, do they survive from year to year? Well, I mean, there always is holdovers. The, the thing you got to think about when it comes to stocking a trout. Most streams that they stock trout in are, are what they consider marginal trout waters, meaning they probably from maybe October through maybe in a good year, June, have enough water from a flow standpoint and, and coolness to support trout. But once we start getting into the you know, dog days of summer, typically because of lack of oxygen and high temperatures, the trout can't survive. They either have to move into tributaries where there's cold refuge or they'll, um, you know, possibly die or be, you know, vulnerable to prey. Uh, because you think about it, like a traditional Pennsylvania stocking, there's a bridge or a nice hole. They go and dump 10 buckets of fish in there. Well, an average bucket of trout maybe is 20 to 25 fish in a bucket. So you may have 250 fish 
in a hole that typically in a wild situation maybe only can support 50 fish. So as, as, as you start to compete for water and space, as the water conditions become less and less, you know, habitable, that's what leads to mortality. Plus you have herons and other prey that makes them more vulnerable because they're all in a real, you know, because think about it. They were reared from an egg to a stockable fish in a cement raceway. And you think about it, the genetics of our stock trout in Pennsylvania have been watered down for generation to generation because they just reuse the same brood stock. It's not like they go out to wild streams and pull new stock in. So these fish don't have, aren't genetically programmed to survive in a, you know, in a traditional stream environment. They have some genetics that's just instilled in them, but a lot of that, you know, survival instincts has, you know, gone away with just because of being stocked and stocked and stocked for, and, you know, reproduce, reproduce over the years. So, I mean, I, I don't know what I would say from a survival and a, and, a, and a holdover standpoint, I don't know the exact figure, but I'd say you're probably in the, you know, less than 5% tile. So if 5% of that 3.2 million fish make it to the next year or even to that fall, you're probably doing something because not only do you have survival, but you have people keeping them. And the limit in Pennsylvania is five fish. I think it's over eight inches. You're allowed to keep per day, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, you have a retired guy that likes to fish. I mean, he could possibly catch 40 fish in a week. Yeah, and, that's a lot of fish. <laughs> you know I mean? And he's legally allowed to do that. You know, where your average working guy maybe only keeps a few here and there and maybe not decimate a stream, but you know, so, you know, with the overstocking of fish, because they do that for a purpose, they want people to catch fish and have a good experience. So by putting more fish in a hole, there's probably a few more dumb ones than <laughs> smart ones, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I understand why they do it. It just doesn't lead to a survival, and it's it's not really a way of rehabbing a stream with fish. It's more just for the recreational side. Okay, and that was going to be one of my next questions. But So with all those fish, you know, 3 million stock fish being thrown in there, they're not, like, as you said, they're really not able to survive. They're just sort of there for recreation. But some are going to survive. So how does that impact – any native or wild fish i mean are they are they intermingling and if they would the, how's that going to impact well i know i mean there's science that states you know uh <clears throat> that anytime you place stock fish into a wild fishery um there's going to be some kind of influence because you know a trout that's grown up in that stream kind of knows the the areas where to be and where not to be for food and and and, and cover and so on and so forth well, say he's the only trout in the stream in March, and then all of a sudden a truck, white truck comes by and you dump, you know, 500 friends in with him. Now he has to move around to, to get to the holding lies where the food is. And he may even move out of the area from an area where maybe he had good refuge from, from predators and for food. Now he has to move upstream or downstream because he, he can't compete with all these other, you know. you know, That is one issue is always competition for food. Um, there's been some studies for and against whether diseases from the hatcheries can affect uh, the wild, you know, fish because maybe they're not used to some of the, uh, like there was there was an outbreak of um, gill lice in some of the hatcheries in the last few years. You know, if that gill lice gets in into a wild stream, it may have an effect on wild trout. I mean, I don't know if there's been a lot of detailed studies done to understand that because there's probably so many variables when you kind of start to implement hatchery fish with wild fish. But overall, the, the general consensus, and this is not, you know. Uh, it's it's well known is it's it's a bad thing anytime you have a wild uh animal and you try to domest put domesticated animals with it almost like turkey you know i don't think they've had a real good success with domesticated turkey being released in the wild no. uh so it's it's the same kind of same kind of concept but the thing you got to think about is any brown trout in pennsylvania that is wild 
was once stocked because we don't, you know, we didn't have the brown trout. So we have to, you know, you can't be completely against stocking because it does have some merit. The thing he's got to be careful is like how and when and where and how you do stocking if you want to protect the wild fishery that's already existing. So if you were king for a day, what would be your best way to conserve the, the wild and native fish? Because I know there have been some states that have limited stocking or they completely shut off certain streams to stocking and to get the native and wild fish populations back up. Is that something that you would offer? Or? Um, I think like if I had the keys of the kingdom, um, first thing I would probably implement would be to say – if there is, if there's any stream in Pennsylvania that has wild trout and it's documented, especially if it's, there's different classes, there's A, B, C, and D class A is the ultimate. And as you go down in a, or down in letters, you're obviously the amount of fish per mile and per uh, what they call hectare acre goes down, but your A and B streams have usually typically a fishable population of trout. I would put regulations on that. No stocking would be done there. And then additional protection, maybe habitat improvement will be done to help better. You got them growing there. What can we do to make it better for them? So whether it's, you know, having a wild trout permit to that, you know, you have to, you know, if you want to uh, participate in the wild trout program, you're paying for it and helping that money could go in for additional resources and, and habitat improvements, um, studying. Um, a lot of states, what they do nowadays, they kind of do kind of a half and half They'll take wild trout eggs from, you know, uh, a known source, and they have these um, plastic uh, cases that hold the eggs, and they make artificial red, so they kind of help the whole spawning process up. I think that's a very good thing that we could do in streams that have very good water quality and, and habitat, maybe help along. Because the thing you get to – I've heard one uh, biologist told me years ago from the Fish Commission, they said, well, in Pennsylvania, if there's, if there's not wild trout there now, there never will be. And I kind of disagree because – Back to the point is, you know, maybe native trout, yes, but wild trout's different because a wild trout is not native to this area. It had to be placed here. So, you know, somebody somewhere put wild trout in every stream that we have, or some tributary of that stream had wild or had stock trout that made it in become mm-hmm. wild. The problem that we have with not helping them and just dumping hatchery fish in, those fish don't have the the the, the capability in most cases to become wild because the genetics are so watered down, you know, so I think helping the fisheries you have by uh, special regulations and conservation and habitat improvement is one thing. Um, having a trout uh, stamp specifically for wild fish to be able to generate revenue is a second thing. I, I think um, if you look at uh, some of the th- three or four major tailwater raceways that become very good fisheries in Pennsylvania, the Clarion, the uh, Yokogany River, um, uh, where else was there? The, the little little Juniata isn't a tail race, but it's a well-known limestone fishery. All three of those rivers had a fingerling program going where they would raise fingerlings and release, you know, I don't know what it was, 500,000 or a million fingerlings in a, a youth stage. So those fish would grow up in the stream, and they actually had, uh, and still this they still do that program. And I think that's a way of going. It's not putting fish that are kind of already mature and, and kind of been grown up in, a, in an environment they aren't going to succeed but by putting them in as juveniles, and maybe you're going to have a, you know, your survival rate is going to be very small, but the ones that do survive are going to basically take on the wild and the, uh, the, the natural instinct to be able to reproduce and, and, and thrive in the wild. So I think some of those points would help 
promote and save the wild fish that we have. I know there's a big push uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's different organizations, Trout Unlimited and some uh, local, that are very, they call back the brookies. Because the brookie trout is our native fish, um, there's a big uh, push to try to fortify them in the ranges where they still live. And I, I personally, I, I agree with that. I think it's great to, you know, where they're existing now, let's try to save them, keep them there. But some states, like as you go down to the Smoky Mountains and even somewhere out in, in the western states, they'll kill the wild fish for the native fish. Like in, in the Smoky Mountains, they actually go in and put um, chemicals in the water and they kill all the fish and then they take wild brook trout from another uh, watershed and put it in that stream because they want to have a pure native strain. And I kind of, I disagree with that. I think, you know, if the wild fish have been here since 1880s, why kill them? I mean, they're great fort fish. They're wild. They're, you know, the closest you're ever going to get to having probably what we had used to have back, you know, 200 years ago. And if you look at it, brown trout are from Europe. Europe has a lot of the same geology and, and geographics in Germany as we have here with the rolling hills and mountains. And so I can see why they do well in our habitat because it's real similar to what they have over in Europe and in England and so on and so forth. So, you know, I know that kind of threw a lot at you, but that, those are some areas that I think uh, we could do better as a state. I mean, if you look out west, like you were saying before, Montana, I think it was back in the 70s, uh, there was a scientist, and I wish I knew his name. He pretty much said, hey, look, if you just leave nature alone and you can protect what you have and regulate it, you know, by, you know, limits of how many people or how many fish you can keep and eat and what species, he said, nature will take care of itself. And I think in Yellowstone Park, it's been since the 70s. And I think in Montana, maybe it was in the late 70s, early 80s, they have not stocked trout. And Montana is a go-to state when it comes to, uh, you know, where people book vacations to go fish. Like the, uh, the Madison River, I think, has like 6,000 trout per mile. So, I mean, they just let nature take its course, and it did very well for itself. So, I mean, Pennsylvania, in, in, one, in one side of the Fish Commission, want to do that. The other side of the Fish Commission kind of uh, regulates for license sales, and it's really hard to regulate for license sales plus promote wild fishing because, you know, it's kind of like, like a seesaw. It's like one gives, one takes. So I just think we need to balance it out maybe a little bit better than we do currently. Yeah, it's hard. If you're, you know, if you manage solely for just – wild fish but you're losing license sales then you don't have the money to support the wild fish you know, so yeah so yeah. I, I get that there's a little bit of a balancing act there yeah because i know john arway before he retired as the uh, head of the fish commission he put an agenda probably two or three years ago which was basically uh conservation first recreation second so his his whole and i think kind of what he was going out on as a re, as his retirement message was you know we need to protect what we have and then the recreation will come second but like you said, when it comes to dollars and cents, that's something that everybody's got to buy into that, you know. And I don't, I don't know if our state's ready for that yet. Where in Montana, whoever they had back in the '70s must have been able to get that point pushed across. But I heard, you know, from reading some articles and different things, that the guy that was like the the head of that, he was almost like the Gary Alt of of that. He had death threats in the whole nine yards uh, when it came to that too. So everybody kind of tippy toes a little bit around some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. Ch change is hard, especially when it comes to, uh, a, a pursuit like fishing or hunting where it's based in so much tradition. Correct. Yep. <clears throat> All 
right, it's time for the fun part of this. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some fishing tips. I know you're you're big into pursuing the wild and the native trout as opposed to the stock trout. Uh, they have to survive every day in their stream with you know predators other than just humans, you know, trying to take their life. Uh, so what? How do you go about trying to find native and wild fish? I mean, I, I'm not asking you to give me your GPS locations <laughs> or your spots. I know that those are some guarded secrets, but you know, what are some things that you're looking for uh, to find a spot where you can fish some wild native trout? <clears throat> well, uh, nowadays it's probably a lot easier than when I started. I kind of got back in, into this pretty heavy back in like the 2007, eight time frame. You know, we're not saying the internet wasn't around, but a lot has happened in the last 10, 12 years. Um, so if we kind of go back in time, when I first started uh, getting into this, I would get topographic maps of Pennsylvania. Um, and there's a couple out there. There's a uh, Eastern Western Pennsylvania Outdoor Atlas and Field Guide is a great book. Um, the DeLorean um, Gazetteer, which has been around for years, is another great um, uh, resource. And I'd just look at at streams that had stock trout streams and maybe the tributaries of those stock trout streams, I first start there. Uh, and I had some success. And then I found out later about the fish commission, uh, the boat, uh, fish and boat commission has a great, um, website now, and it's even better in the last few years than it has ever been. Uh, they call it trout water classification. Uh, and you go to that page and it, and it basically breaks out because in Pennsylvania, you have, um, approved trout waters. You have, uh, uh, wild trout water, which can be class A through, like we were talking about, like D, and a subcategory of, of uh, wild trout waters is what they call natural reproduction, and then you also have what they call wilderness uh, trout streams, which are typically brook trout fisheries, and they have maps where you can go on and select different uh, layers on the map, and it'll highlight different uh, trout fisheries in that, and they typically give you the, I think it's the confluence of the closest stream GPS coordinate, so you can really lock it down tight nowadays uh, to finding these streams through that resource. Um, also, another great resource for finding trout streams is uh, there's a great internet site called wildtroutstreams.com. And I think there's like 35 different states that they have huge amounts of resources. And Pennsylvania has its share. There's a great amount of resources there. Um, and that, that what, I, what I tell typically uh, covers what I consider traditional ways of finding wild trout streams. Um, some of the other kind of ways that, you know, maybe are non-traditional or uh, maybe take a little bit of work is, um, you know, social media and books. You can dig through that. Um, a lot of times in books, I tell guys, you got to read to find print because a lot of guys don't want to come out and tell you exactly where these streams are because it takes a lot of hard work. It's like finding a big buck. You're not going to tell a guy where it's at, mm -hmm. right? So it's the same kind of thing. You know where there's a 25-inch wild brown shot in some small stream. You're, you're not going to really diverge that information, but I always say wild, true wild trout guys that are passionate, it's almost like you got to get it off you once in a while. Cause it's like, but it builds up in you. So a lot of times they'll give you a little hint, especially to the guy that they see that maybe has the same passion. They may throw a bone out to them every once in a while. So, um, through social media and also through word of mouth, I've learned a lot, actually probably a lot of the streams that I found fish in have come through those kind of channels. Another area that a lot, a lot of people look at is every, county except for philadelphia and pennsylvania has a conservation district where there's people that worry about the soil and the water and all the uh, different environmental issues throughout the county most counties have that person in place that's called a, uh, um, the like the streams or the water uh, coordinator 
that person knows a lot about the different tributaries to major streams. They, a lot of times they do studies of insect life and fish studies. So they can give you some tips and, uh, you know, tactics of how to find uh, streams in, in given uh, counties and geographic areas in Pennsylvania. So um, the other thing you got to look at, and two other little areas where, especially for wild brown trout um, that people overlook all the time, is brown trout are very migratory fish. And so during the prime feeding times of the year, which is typically, say, October through May, brown trout will habit true trout waters, you know, that, like, you're, you're used to um, seeing and, and fishing. But as those trout waters start to get warmer and, and not as habitable, they'll go up the tributaries of these streams. So a lot of streams will have trout part of the year, not the other part of the year. So guys will go there and fish, and they may have marginal success and say, oh, there's not – trot in, in this stream or they're not here they're, and they're not stocked or whatever but i found that a lot of streams that are classified as cool water where you would catch traditionally catch smallmouth bass and you know pike and different uh, warm water species those streams have large brown trout inhabit them in the winter because as the water cools down and the tributaries the food sources start to dry up all the food goes into the main branch or the larger tribute or the larger river systems and so they'll um uh, go there and, and, and winter out in those areas. And, and a well-known one for that is the Frankstown branch of the Juniata River. It's not classified as a trout fishery, but there's trout there, and they typically are in there in the fall and winter months, which a lot of guys don't like fishing that time of year. But it's just another, you know, air in your quiver. If you want to catch fish year-round, you kind of have to adapt to when and where fish are. Um, and another area, people always think I'm nuts when I tell them this, but I, I've had so many... I think the last time I counted, there were seven or eight streams that I, I fished and caught very large sized trout in. Is fish that are affected by abandoned mine drainage, and in Pennsylvania we have a lot of abandoned a mine drainage everywhere. Um, but the thing you got to remember is that mine drainage is coming out of the ground, you know, 52 degrees a year. All right, so it's like I always say it's like a mini till race. It's like a dam, you know, it's cold water coming up year round. Not not all mine pollution is acidic a lot of it just have what they call iron loading so it makes the water a little bit orange and brown trout can survive in this these type of waters and because brown trout will move around for food a lot of those streams typically don't have very good insect or minnow life but they have enough to survive for a brown trout plus brown trout are very opportunistic feeders so they'll eat mice they'll eat rodents they'll eat you know whatever falls in the water so they can survive in these streams that are marginal when it comes to water quality but the key to these streams and the reason they're there is because of cold water which they need because they're a cold water fish but also because they don't have much human inf influence nobody fishes those streams so a brown trout can live to a ripe old age because it's never getting caught to or you know a stream like the juniata river or some of these very well known the yakagani and things like that has a lot more fishing pressure so the larger trout typically move out of those areas to other areas that you know seek refuge and and, and so on and so forth so things like that you know people Somebody told me this tip years ago, and I thought, man, these guys are nuts, man. There's no fish in these orange cricks. And I'm here to tell you they're there. And the thing that you got to remember is when you fish a stream, when you find one, and you find one on a map, you say, hey, this looks like a stream. It kind of meets the criteria that I'm, I'm used to seeing and reading about. You need to fish these streams at least three times because I know one stream that I have that I've caught most of all my fish are in the 25-inch range, and I caught three or four in this one stream. I'll fish it one year and catch fish and it may be two years before I catch it again because they, they move around and there's not that many. There may be a fish every half mile. So, you know, it just depends on if you're at the right place at the right time 
you know, so if you fish a stream three or four times, it kind of gives you, and three or four times throughout the year, don't fish them like, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, fish it, you know, uh, October, January, March, before you say that stream doesn't have anything in, or it's not worth my time, you know, because a lot of people just don't put the time in and, and wild trout fishing, if you pursue it and you get into that, it's, it's all, it's quality over quantity. You're not going to go out and get a, you know, your limit. And, and, and I don't recommend you keeping anything because you have a fish that's 25 inches in a stream. It may take that fish eight years to get that big or five years to get that big. And for you to take it home, I don't know, sometimes I think it's an injustice to that animal. I mean, he's been through some hardships, you know. Yeah. So <clears throat> so you found that fish, right? And because these wild trout, because they have to survive, do you have to fish any different compared to stock trout? Um, I would say so. I, I think the biggest thing most people screw up in, in wild trout fishing versus stock trout is stealthness and camouflage and, and, and being kind of low profile. Wait, hold on. Camouflage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't go and like go head to toe in, um, you know, army camo or, or, or waterfowl camo or, or, you know, or uh, real tree hardwood or something. But I, I think you need to wear drab stuff. You need to wear, you know, tans, blues, greens. You, you almost got to, you know, if you're, if you're in the summertime, you're going to wear like greens and olives because it matches the surrounding cover. Um, you know, you see these pictures of like, in magazines of guys holding up a big trout with a red hat on. I mean, you're not going to catch any <laughs> wild trout if you have a red hat because they're used to looking up. They're looking for predator, you know, predators like herons and, and eagles and ospreys. So they're always looking around. If they see something red, that's not normally there. It's going to warn them. So first of all, you got to be concealed. You got to have a low profile. And, and what I always say is stay out of the water as much as you can. If you don't have to be in the water, I don't recommend being in the water because I have a story, and this is a true story. I, there was a wild trout. He wasn't real big, maybe like 20 inches. But at the time, it was one of the bigger ones I've ever seen in the stream. This is going back 10 years ago. And I, I hooked him two or three times. I knew where he was at. And this one day, I said, I'm going to go catch him. You know, So the water was low and clear. It wasn't the first, best conditions. So I snuck down, and he was in. He, I could see him in this hole. He was sitting there. I'm like, there he is. So I'm like, how the heck am I going to get to him? So I went up the creek, and this is no exaggeration, probably 40 yards and crossed because I, I got a better casting angle downstream from him than where I was at. And I, when I went upstream, I crossed. I could see the silt in the water because, you know, the time you walk in the water, a little mm -hmm. bit of silt comes up. And the silt plume is slowly meandering down the creek, and I'm running down the bank because I want to be ahead of it because I know as soon as he sees that silt, he's gone. And I get down, and there's this jagger bush. I'm trying to get around, and I can see this silt plume coming down the creek. And it got probably within 10, 20 feet of him. He was gone. I never got a chance to cast on him. Really? Wow. So, yeah, they're very – especially when they get – you get a fish that's been in the creek five years. You know, it's been used to that surroundings. It's wintered through there. It's, you know, been up and – with water flows up and down. They get very, very, uh, very um, cognizant of siltation in the water, vibrations – Things like that. So your average guy used to a trout stream, he'll wade into a stream, get to a nice kiss. That doesn't work. I always say fish to where you want to go. So a lot of times the big trout are lazy. They like to lay in the soft water with uh, soft substrate. So like close to the bank, they'll lay there. Because if you think about it, if you're a 25-inch fish in a stream, you're the baddest boy in a block. You don't, other than like maybe an eagle or something, there's not much going to take you down. So you can kind of just go wherever you want. So a lot of guys will walk into a creek, and they'll walk right through its lie, maybe not see it, and it'll spook. So – Definitely keep out of the water is, is, is one of the – keep keep low profile, keep concealed, don't wear bright clothes. Um, you know, other than that, I mean, they're no different than any other trout. You have to give them what they're used to eating. 
But I found in, in, in trout streams, especially wild ones, because there's not a lot of food in a lot of cases, they're pretty opportunistic. They're not going to be real picky. You're not going to say, well, you know, hey, uh, I don't like that. I want, I want this. Um, but, y- y- you know, when it comes, everybody always says, well, how do you fish for them? When you fish for wild trout, you have to cover a lot of water because you got to remember that the amount of fish per mile is a lot different than a stock stream or, or a class A wild trout stream that has 6,000 fish per mile. So tactics like, like spinners, you know, casting like rooster tails and different uh, Rapalos and crankbaits, you can cover a lot of water. I don't conventional tackle fish. I fly fish, but I do what a technique called streamer fishing, which represents bait fish. I can cover a lot of water. I can cover probably a mile crick in maybe 45 minutes to an hour. So you can cover, and the thing in a stream like that, that fish probably hasn't seen a human for a long time, if maybe ever. You throw a lure in there, you maybe one or two casts per hole, and you move because it's going to know it's there. It's either going to come out and hit it, or it's going to show itself. And if it shows itself, that's cool. Come back later, you'll catch them. Especially if you come back where the water's stained, that fish is going to still be there, and it's not going to be able to see as well because the water's cloudy. Um, maybe there's some drizzle, rain, overcast day you'll get that fish. I mean, some of these fish that I, I find, it may take me three or four attempts, but I'll usually catch them, uh, you know. But I, you know, try to be very careful on how I do it, you know, maybe do it over like a month period of time. So if you move a fish, let it rest, come back a couple weeks later. And you typically are looking for um, times when you have overcast, darker days, um, rain, definitely rainy days are great. Um, you know, uh, first lights end of the, in the evenings are another good time. So, when when's the best time of year to fish well best time to fish for wild trout especially if you're trying to target some trophy wild trout is probably what not when your average guy likes to fish um there's kind of i have kind of three there's kind of three seasons um we're actually you know coming now that we're in september here we're kind of coming upon the first of the seasons is the first major water event after a long summer um before the leaves fall is a very good time to target wild trout so you're typically talking late uh september early october but it's all based on water so whenever you see that three or four days in a row you're going to get rain the crooks are going to come up a good foot they're going to get stained that's one because those trout have been laying dormant all summer hiding out in cold cold water seeps trying to kind of refuge and all of a sudden you get that first shot of cool water and you'll lose usually maybe 10 15 degrees in water temperature in that creek and they just turn on because they know the spawn i mean brown trout which in most cases, most of the fish in PA are wild brown trout, you know, with the exception of some brookies here and there. But most streams that I pursue are wild brown trout streams. Brown trout spawn in the fall. Okay, so do brook trout. But they get that kind of desire to feed prior to spawning because spawning takes a lot out of them. And they typically spawn from late October through December. So the first push is the first rain event uh, after a long summer. Then you have a kind of a two or three week sometimes a month gap there because once the leaves start falling in the water, even though you have high flows, it's really hard to catch fish because you're always snagging leaves. Mm. Plus the fish get really weird at time of year because there's so much debris in the water. They don't know what's real and what's not. So they're constantly, just think about, you have all these leaves and acorns and stuff. They're, they're constantly dodging, uh, you know, things underwater. And that normally the water at that time is more cloudy. So they just kind of get in a really weary state, not saying you can't catch them, but it's not as productive. Like say, uh, you know, October, mid-October through November. Then when we start to get around bear season and deer seasons, when it starts getting good again, uh, because by that time we typically have had, uh, you know, uh, uh, some cold fronts come through, the water starts to cool down, the fish are in the spawning mode. 
Some guys don't like fishing in November because they don't like to disturb them on the, on the reds. I, I don't typically target fish on the reds or fish that are spawning, but I'll, and I typically, in those time of year, I'll try to float stream. So I'm not accidentally walking on fish, but I, I don't, you know, if I have the opportunity to fish in November, I'll occasionally do here and there. Um, so that's kind of another little window. Um, and then the third window <clears throat> is the first major snow front um, before, like, you know, you, you typically have the holiday season and then you maybe have a few snows here and there, but nothing real big. And then typically you're on uh, first of the year, first week of January, you get that first big Arctic plunge that's coming down. Mm-hmm. If you can fish the first couple of days of, before that front and usually a day into that front, that's when you can – that's when the big fish are going to bite because they can sense that they know it's not long before they're going to have to hunker back down and get in their wintering realm. Um, so that's another major area of, 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 you know, time of the year to fish. Then I've had real good luck. Like in February, you get that first warm up of the year, whenever they've been laying in that cold water for a long time, you get a little bump in temperature, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, like one of them cloudy, but somewhat bright afternoons. That's another good time. Um, and then, you know, traditionally, once we start getting into the springtime, you know, when, uh, you know, March, April, May, there's opportunities to catch fish throughout that time. But I found once you start getting more and more people on the water, um, plus you start getting longer daylight, the, lar- the, the larger trout become more nocturnal and they, they hunt at night. So I don't do real well, like in the, in the late spring, summer time frame. Unless you're using going like what they call mousing, where you're going out and throwing topwater at night, you'll catch trout at that point in time. But I don't typically, I kind of walk away from and kind of go after bass and other species, you know, in the basically late April through probably September. But I'd say first rain of September around Thanksgiving is a good time. And then that first major snowfall of the year, you can hit those three times. And if you know there's some larger fish in a, in a given watershed, that's when you're going to get them. So not in the spring, not in the summer. Basically. I'm not saying you can't catch big, big fish in the spring and summer, but you start to have issues with, you know, if you're competing with other people. Right. You start having, like, maybe you have a stream that has some wild trout that they've moved down in the winter, but then all of a sudden they're dumping stock trout on them so they'll move out. You know, you start getting more people on the water. You start having more daylight. Because brown trout are very, they're, they're designed to feed at night or under very low light. The way their eyes are designed and the way they're, they're, they have a lateral line they sense. So they're not really a daytime feeder. Not that you can't catch a trout in the middle of a bright day, but your odds are stacked against you. So as we get further and further in the spring, you get longer daylight, you're just kind of going against what they were designed to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, the, it, what you're saying goes against <laughs> everything that I've ever heard about <laughs> trout fishing in Pennsylvania, but it makes sense. You're, you're not going after the same type of fish that no, the it, majority of you know, stock trout hunters or, or fisher, fishermen are going after. Yeah, I'm going, you know, it's almost like, it was almost like, you know, kind of uh, trophy hunting for deer. I'm going after trophy hunting for wild trout. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not against catching small trout, but I've fished enough that I'm kind of looking to, you know, I'd rather catch one large trout that may take me a month to catch him than catch a, lar- a bunch of smaller fish. It's just the point in my fishing career that I'm at. Plus I just, I just have such a respect for large trout because for a trout to, and, and especially in a stream that doesn't have a lot of food for a trout to get 24, 25 inches, in a stream that, you know, is not that great when it comes to food and habitat. That's impressive. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? With all the, the variables as against it, from wildlife to people to pollution to everything, I, I just have a lot of respect for that. So for me to catch one and hold one up, I mean, that means a lot to me. So 
I've kind of honed my skills over the years kind of after that facet of fishing. It may not be for everybody. Guys may like to go out and catch numbers. And, and definitely this kind of fishing is not for something that you want to introduce kids to because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it, they're not going to have a lot of – uh, opportunities through a given day, you know what I mean? And, and you're going to be hiking through a bunch of brush and stuff. And, you know, it's not as, as enjoyable as maybe <laughs> walking down to, you know, a hatchery supported trout stream and where there's a bridge and you can get there and, and mm-hmm. not have a lot of trouble. So, so it's time for, our, uh, run out of time here a little bit. So time for our call to action. Uh, we like to end the, our conversations with that sort of call for action. So here's, you know, I'm going to give you the floor to our listeners, you know, how can we help fishing? How can we help trout in Pennsylvania? Well, I think that one of the first and major things we need to do before we even talk about how to regulate and manage all that is just get kids into fishing because really without having some next generation coming up, we could do everything and plate everything in place and it could just fall on its face because there's nothing to support it. So I think getting kids into fishing, and, that, and that's becoming tougher and tougher. I have three boys, and they were very all – when they were younger, very interested in fishing. But as they got older, one's 14, one's 12, and one's 9, my 9-year-old's still somewhat interested. But my other two, they don't really earn interest in fishing anymore, which I, you know, I know everything kind of has time and place. But, you know, there's that many other youths that are like them that don't like going out in the wild because they're used to, you know, the phones and the, and the sports and sports and all times are year-round. And it's just kids don't have the time. There's so much competition for activities. So, I don't know exactly how you do it, but I think we need to do a better way of getting kids in the, in the fishing and hunting and any kind of outdoor passion, I think, because that's going to help all these other avenues become true if we have people to support it, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, the other thing that we need to do better in Pennsylvania is when it comes to the hatchery trot program, I think we need to tweak it a little bit, maybe kind of look to some other states and how they do it. I know a lot of times – our state fish commission doesn't like to do that because we're one of the oldest ones in this country. So there's some pride there, which, you know, they, they've done a pretty good job, I think over the years. But one thing, if you think about it, I don't know if a lot of people actually have sat down and thought this, but we stock trout for the traditional trout angler starting in March and throughout pretty much mid May. Our trout season typically in Western Pennsylvania starts second week of April Normally, by the 1st of June, is not too good fishing anywhere because the streams have gotten low and clear and so on and so forth. So if you think about it, there's about a six- to eight-week period there where we're putting thirty, you know, basically 3 million fish for a six-week season. To me, I don't think that's the best benefit for, you know, most bang for your buck because, like we were talking earlier, what's the survival rate? What's the, the bang? You know, how much bang are you getting for your buck when you put them fish in there? What a lot of other states have done, they'll start stocking, like in Pennsylvania – probably mid-October when the water gets restored in a lot of the streams. From October through opening day, maybe a little bit past opening day, they'll stock. And all the streams will be catch and release until a point in time where they'll say, okay, now you can keep them. They typically do that after when the water becomes marginal and they want to get the fish out of there so they don't die and waste away. You mm-hmm. know, I think if we adapted that, we'd have a lot better fishing in Pennsylvania. A lot more people have access to fish. But you would have to go away from that, hey, I want to keep my five limit. You know, so I, I think we need to do a little bit better management of our stocking program because it costs a lot of money. And I think all that money for six weeks, to me, just doesn't seem like a real uh, good way of, <laughs> from a financial standpoint. And I also think, you know, uh, when it comes to um, a lot of these streams in Pennsylvania, they've been 
re rehabilitating from the mine pollution and industrial pollution that's happened over the years. And the first thing they want to do, they clean a stream up, they get the water quality back on track. And the first thing they do, they want to stock it with trout, yep. which that's fine. But you remember, they're stocking with trout that are not genetically the same as, I mean, genetically, but they don't have all of the, uh, their genetics have been watered down mm -hmm. over the years. I think they need to do more what they call capture, uh, plant capture, where they'll go to a wild trout stream, electric shock it, get wild trout and stock that stream with trout that have already been wild in another stream. Uh, and then also we talked earlier about the fingerlings and some of the other uh, uh, ha having the uh, artificial reds and different other types of programs. I think some of that stuff they need to do as they rehabilitate these streams, they don't need to bring the white trucks in and dump in mm -hmm. dumb stock trout because I don't think it's good for the – uh, you know, the overall bringing it back to the way it was. Yeah, it's sort of that, there's not that long-term benefit. I mean, there's short-term, the recreation, yes, but at the same time, I think because those streams have not been a good fishery for years, why not take your time and make it a good fishery instead of just making it instant fishery, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, you know, other than that, I mean, obviously there's all kinds of things you can talk about, but, I mean, those are kind of the key things. The kids, you know, a little bit better management of the fish, the, the, of the hatchery fishing program that we have. And then, you know, as we rehabilitate and find these wild trout streams, I think we need to better manage them for, you know, future generations and, and kind of get away from the quantity, catching a lot of fish, kind of get the more mentality of quality of fish. You know, it's almost like the antler restrictions. Mm -hmm. So to, to the trout angler, the wild trout is the example of like a 10 point, you know, Pope and young buck, a, a 30 inch brown trout in the wild is like, your, I don't know, whatever inch score buck, you Probably, know, the, the way you talk sounds like it'd be like a 200 inch buck. You yeah. Know, so, I mean, it's like, if, I mean, if I, before I breathe my, uh, dying breath here, if I can catch a, and hold a 30 inch wild brown trout in Pennsylvania, I can go at that point and be a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, I've had a few on, but I've never, never handled, handled one. So I'm, that's on my bucket list of things to do. <clears throat> all right. Well, Chad, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, really enjoyed learning about all this and, and talking about trout all right hey thanks for having me hopefully i hope somebody out there kind of get the the itch and the bug to want to go out and pursue these fish they're here they're, there's more streams than you can think about in pennsylvania that have these fish um you know i could share a few but i'd have to <laughs> i'd have to race this broadcast right <laughs> yeah no we, we don't want to do that like i said no gps coordinates just uh give someone the tools to be able to find them on their own because really i mean that's half the fun That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Chad for joining me to discuss a personal passion of his. After talking with him, you can tell he is passionate about Pennsylvania trout and conserving them as well as our streams. There are so many different ways to participate in outdoor activities, and I encourage each of you to find your own way to become involved. Until then, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend. And as always, stay wild. Mm -hmm.